Hello and welcome to another episode of The Well-Read Catholic. I'm your host, Patrick Callahan, and today I'm really excited to share with you an interview I recently had with Dr. Michael Bowler. Dr. Bowler is Associate Professor of Classics and Director of the Honors Program at the University of St. Thomas. More importantly, he is the author of a new book, Introduction to Classical and New Testament Greek, A Unified Approach, which was just released this month through CUA Press. Whether or not you are actively learning or teaching Greek, our discussion today about the importance of reading classical and New Testament authors in dialogue with each other is one that I am very excited to share with you, and I hope you enjoy it too. Welcome to the Wired Catholic, Michael. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. So you have a new book out, uh, Introduction to Classical and New Testament Greek, a Unified Approach. Now, doing a, a book interview on this, you know, we can't go chapter by chapter and talk about the sort of artistic choices you made. But I found it an intriguing enough book that I wanted to sit down and talk with you about some of the choices you did make in the overall construction of the book. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about reasons why people should read Greek. And maybe we should start with that. You've been teaching Greek now for how many years? As a professor, it's been eight years now, and then a few years as a grad student as well. And then you're a faculty member down at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, correct? That's correct. Uh, University of St. Thomas, I'm the uh, lone classicist down here and uh, also the director of our honors program. That's fantastic. So did this book evolve straight from St. Thomas, or is this something that you've been kind of gestating in for years? Well, I mean, a little bit of both. I mean, I started working on it uh, about five or six years ago when I was here, and really I just I wasn't happy with any of the the books I was using for class. And so it's a small Catholic liberal arts university. And so the students who took Greek from me, many of them were Catholics and wanted to read the New Testament. But all the books that I had been trained on were purely classical. And we can talk about why that is later. And they didn't have any New Testament passages whatsoever. So, but when I went to, you know, find something uh, from the New Testament, all of those books, that's all they did. So this is what I ended up doing was just teaching out of a classical textbook and then bringing in a bunch of New Testament stuff as well. And that was kind of the genesis uh, for, for the book as well. Also, my students didn't like a lot of the sentences. And so that was kind of a, uh, one of the uh, um, reasons that made me want to write a book uh, as well. But it really was purely, I want to write a book that I want to teach out of in class. And that's how it all started. So some people who obviously haven't learned Greek at all don't even understand, is it just a content difference between the, the older Greek and the, that is the so-called classical Greek and the, the New Testament books? Or, or what's going on there? It really is. You know, you'll hear terms like New Testament Greek, and I even use that in my book, and classical Greek, you'll hear terms Attic Greek. One thing that is important, it is different from modern Greek. The difference is, you know, maybe the best example would be the difference between Italian and Latin. I've had modern Greek students in my class. Some native speakers done really well. Others have failed the course because they thought the modern Greek would uh, get them through without having to do work. So it is different enough from the modern. But in the period that we're talking about, when the New Testament was written and uh, the classical period, it really is the same language. There's little differences, but most beginning Greek students will not notice any of those differences. Specialists will know the differences, but it really is the same language. And it really is primarily for ideological purposes that they're, they've been separated. So classical textbooks don't really consider the New Testament to be important enough uh, to read, so they uh, exclude it from their books, um, or perhaps they think it's too religious and exclude it from their books. And then books written for people who want to read the New Testament 
exclusively focus on that and don't really bring any of the, the wider Greek language. But it, but it really is the same. You know, because I needed to communicate in my book what I was doing, I, I titled it Classical and New Testament Greek. But once you start reading the early chapters, you realize that it really is just the same language. As the book evolved and you're, you're you know, sort of sitting down and coming to this moment that you're going to do this, you know, how do you weigh the balance content-wise as you're preparing these chapters? From my own experience, I would say, so, as someone who, who reads and does Greek, that in the early chapters, it would be a little easier, I would imagine, to pull um, passages of interest from the New Testament. Some of those great authors in, in classical Greek um, are certainly, you know, we throw around the, the phrase parasyntaxis, that is, you know, dependent clauses within sentences that make them much more complicated, um, much more complete, uh, complex in their thought, but at the same time, a little harder for the introductory student. Um, did you find yourself um, leaning one way or the other as you're building this book, or did you try to keep sort of a straight, even tack between the, the two sides? I really did try to keep, it's not always five and five, but each book has 10 example sentences. Uh, and I really tried to stay as close as possible to five from classical and five from, from the New Testament for every chapter. It really wasn't, there, there's a lot of really easy uh, Greek out there, primarily um, proverbs and sayings. So uh, some kind of classic proverbs and stuff from the classic playwright Menander for classical things worked really well. But you are correct, the beginning, the first five chapters were the hardest uh, to find sentences for, just because there were so many sentences that I would have loved to use and are great, but you know they had a particular verb that hadn't been introduced yet, or they had a, uh, a noun case that hadn't been introduced yet. It was the actual finding. Now I know, we can talk about this later, but one of the distinguishing features of my book is that I use all real Greek sentences, so no kind of made-up sentences, and I discovered why fairly quickly, uh, and was that it's really hard to do. So the actual finding of the sentences, just scouring different texts, took me about five times as long as it did to actually sit down and write the textbook itself. So that was the hard part, uh, was, was finding kind of great sentences to use. The, the writing of the book was, was short in comparison to that. Well, that's good. You know, that sounds like a lot of effort on your part, but uh, I can also, from the teacher's perspective, see that sometimes students expend quite a deal of effort on their part to learn the language. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, in, in your own reasons, why why should anyone bother to, to learn Greek? Uh, before I, I answer that question, I think uh, you brought up a good point, which is that a lot of students um, struggle to, to learn Greek. And one of the things I did in my book was I, I said, and I'm sure you're probably in the same situation that, that I am, where 99% of my students are not going to become classicists. They're not going to go to graduate school. Uh, for Greek, uh, and really all they're going to get is two, maybe three semesters uh, at a university or one year, year at a high school. And so it was kind of centered around the belief that, okay, I have them for one year. How am I going to teach this? So one of the reasons that students struggle with Greek, I think, a lot is that most of the textbooks out there today are designed for textbooks that are going to train classes. People are going to go to do this for a living. So they have a lot of information where the kind of the casual student, the student who's doing this for self-study, 
just doesn't need to know. And so I simplified a lot of things in my book, a lot of the uh, kind of trials that old Greek professors used to relish. Um, uh, I've, I've, in a sense, just told students there, so they don't have to spend hours trying to look up forms that they don't find in the dictionary. So um, I, I kind of came at it from, from that angle. It's really it's a Greek book written for someone who doesn't want to become a professional classicist. Now, if you wanted to become a professional classicist or spend years learning Greek, you could definitely do that with the, with the book, but that's not its audience. To your first question, uh, what I always tell my students is, it's fun and it's really good for you. On the first day of class, I, I really spend the entire day talking about what are you doing here, other than you, you thought it was interesting or your major might require it, because we don't actually have a designated language requirement. So most of the students in the class actually want to be there. And I start off by talking about what it does for your brain, all the benefits for your brain. I have actually a retired uh, neurologist in my class right now, and she loves doing it because of it's able to keep her engaged mentally after retirement. So it's great for the brain. It's great to, we use the dirty word, memorization, but as I like to call it, internalization. It's really important, especially for young people, to be able to learn how to internalize things. And so not only is it just a fantastic tool to uh, uh, strengthen your brain, but also what it gives you access to, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do a book that used all real sentences because you're asking students to memorize these forms and do all this hard work for Greek. And if their reward for doing that is reading made-up sentences about, you know, Socrates giving books to Plato or something like that, it's kind of a it's kind of a letdown. <laughs> so I wanted to have real payoff. So the very first sentence in the very first chapter of my book that they do sentences, chapter two, is is God is love, right? So right from the start, they're getting the famous sentences, the really interesting sentences. And they don't have to wade through a bunch of the, the made-up sentences. So the second part is what it gives you access to. Uh, and it gives you access to not only scripture, if you're Catholic, that's obviously going to be a very important draw and one which uh, I'd be happy to go on about. But also, you're getting some of the kind of great foundational literature, even things you don't realize, you know, lines that you've heard and expressions that you've heard from other contexts and you don't realize where they originally come from. You, you touched there in the end about... Um why should one care about the other? You know, the, the famous line, what does Athens to do with Jerusalem? You know, I'll, I'll pose that question, which obviously it was a philosophical and theological question, but here I, I think it's a, a valid question too that we've sort of divided uh, these Greek textbooks into the two unequal camps. We seem to be training two sets of students, right? You know, students who are in, perhaps in seminary and only gonna get just enough Greek to, to access the New Testament and maybe not even access the New Testament, maybe just enough so they can throw a few words into the homily. And then on the other hand, you have classicists being trained without any view towards reading things after a certain artificial timestamp. Could you address maybe the reasons why, you know, you're teaching at a Catholic college and the book itself is, is published by uh, Catholic University of America, um, but why should someone at, say, uh, a secular school consider adopting this as their Greek textbook? Uh, two answers. Well, one of which is that you actually, even if, you know, I am a secular person and, and don't care about the New Testament at all, you could actually still have great benefit from the book because every chapter is half of them are New Testament. You just wouldn't have to, to read those. So the, the, the benefits of even just being able to read real Greek right from the start, there really aren't a lot of books that do those, and they have kind of pretty bad sentences, frankly. So I taught a uh, advanced, compressed Greek course to PhD philosophy students just so they could read Aristotle, and that's in fact what I did with an early draft of this book. We just skipped over the, the New Testament part 
And uh, likewise, if you were in a time crunch and you just didn't have time for anything else, you could just do the, the, the New Testament sentences. So the book would actually work for, for either one really well. But obviously, I believe that it works best together because you get a wide range of, of, um, of work. So coming out from the New Testament perspective, only a tiny fraction of the words are words that the early Christians invented themselves or repurposed themselves. Most of the words are all words that have been kind of living in Greek speakers' mouths for, for centuries. And so to really kind of sometimes you can have a inaccurate notion of the richness of a word if the only time you're going to see it is one author using it in one particular way. So take, for example, the word logos. In the beginning was the logos. It's extremely important in Christianity. It's the second person of the Trinity. Really rich word. But even before then, it was an incredibly rich, subtle word with many ranges of meaning, which is why it took early Roman Christians so long to figure. Everyone just kind of thinks everyone you know, read this and thought verbum, but it takes a long time to get there. Some people liked ratia. There were different translations because of its range of meaning, they couldn't really settle on one. Having the kind of range of a wide variety, I think, makes for better Greek learning than just reading kind of one specific thing. From the classics perspective as well, not only is it just this is the time period we're reading Greek in, but it's also these are the select authors we're reading Greek from. But again, that gives you a very narrow way of thinking about how the language kind of breathes, how it, how it functions. There's a New York Times bestseller list uh, book right now called Range, and it's a fact about why generalists are generally better at things than specialists. And one of the examples he kind of uses is that if you if you train someone to make free throws from the free throw line in basketball, they found that doing, say, 1,000 shots from the free throw line was less effective than doing a smaller number from the free throw line and then a little bit a foot in front of the free throw line, and then a little bit a foot behind the free throw line. And what they found was that ability, that range, was better than specialization. What I found is that my students are able to read Greek better the wider range of Greek that they have, whereas if they're just focused on a really isolated author or an isolated time period, it gives them a mistaken notion of what the language is, and that by doing more sources, and I have sources from Homer to New Testament, we have drama, philosophy, history, all these different genres, it actually makes them better at reading the New Testament than if they were just to focus on that. That's a really good point. And think of the number of times I've read Shakespeare, and I thought I've understood the Shakespeare, only to realize later that my limited range had made me come in with preconceived notions of what words or phrases meant. Uh, and when I look in the context of his own time, it means something completely different. Well, the other reverse of the, the original question put back to you is, you know, why then should a seminary or uh, a Catholic school or a Protestant school be concerned with learning classical Greek in addition to New Testament Greek? Why can't we just go with the Gospels onward? First of all, I would say that you are kind of missing out on a great deal. You're missing out. Not only are these works that would have been in the minds of Christians for centuries, but you're also missing out on some of the greatest literature ever written. You're missing out on fantastic philosophy. So many of the things that we 
think and do now have their origin in ancient Greek sources. We just don't know it. It really is kind of a process of, you know, see time and time. It's just like, oh, that's where that comes from. Ah, I see. I get it. Part of the other reason is that, especially for a Catholic student, one of the things that is hard for us to kind of look back on, it comes up over and over again when we're teaching either mythology in a course or Greek, is that many people think Christianity is kind of too harsh or Catholic orthodoxy is too rigid, but to the ancient Greek, it was way too good to be true. <laughs> so to be able to see kind of the, the, the world in which they're, they're living, the kind of separation of the, the gulf that exists between mortals and the immortals and something like Homer or Euripides or even Sophocles, you, you, you really kind of miss what that original message would have sounded like and why Paul had such a hard time talking to many of these Greeks. And so you're really you're, you're missing out on a lot, but then there's really no advantage to the specialization. You might be able to read a few more lines if you just did a year of just reading the New Testament, but what, what you think is reading more is really most New Testament Greek textbooks are going to give you paraphrases. So you're not even really going to be reading the real thing only in, until much later in the book. So why not, instead of reading you know, a bunch of paraphrase stuff, read a wide range? And still, by the time you finish this textbook, you'll have read 200 lines of scripture in the original, nothing paraphrased whatsoever. That's a good point. But I remember you leading, was it Latin or Greek classes at St. Paul's in New York City? Both, actually, both. Uh, and those were all adult learners, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. Could you maybe talk about strategies for, for adult learners, people who are either alone and want to go alone, or maybe ways that people can find a community to learn together, uh, and how you've done that thing in the, yourself and, and what you recommend to other people? Yeah, I mean, I've had a, I've had a lot of adult learners, and they're, they're really some of uh, uh, my favorite to, to teach uh, because they have that kind of wealth of experience. So, so many of these the sentences that I use in my book, so many of the, the digressions I go into, you know, they've, they've, they've experienced these things. People are different, but kids are not going to kind of resonate with a lot of the stuff that Euripides says about sufferings like an older person will, right? So it doesn't mean you shouldn't read the things, but the adult learners, I find, their, their main problem is that it, it's a lack of confidence, and they think, and you hear people say this all the time, quote, unquote, I'm just not good at languages. Like, very few people are, right? I, I, I'm a, a case in point. Uh, I had to work really hard. This stuff, it took a long time for me to, to, to learn this stuff. So I think a lot of people equate something being difficult. If it's difficult, it means I'm not good at it. Some things are, are just difficult. Um, so um, I think that deters uh, a lot of older people thinking somehow they're just too old to, to, to learn these things. But really, almost without exception, the, the older learners have been, have been fantastic. Many of them are lucky enough to be in a city to where they can find uh, groups that someone will teach out of a textbook at a church or uh, even at most colleges would be more than happy to have people audit their classes. So I have a lot of auditors. Um, who are retired, who will come in and audit my classes. But even if you don't, you're stuck out of the middle of nowhere. I really did design the book to be for self-study as well. I basically assume that people don't have any background with languages whatsoever when I write the textbook because different 
periods and some people went to public schools, some people went to, you know, some people have been homeschooled. So just people's uh, familiarity with grammar, language, these things varies widely. So I just decided just to start at the bottom and assume that people don't know any of this stuff. So one of the great benefits is actually that you don't know anything about language and grammar. You will actually, by, by going through this book, learn, learn a lot of that terminology and things that seemed intimidating before turn out not to be so. After someone's done this book, uh, are there resources then for them to go on further? What would what would your recommendation be? You know, for the for that independent learner or for that independent group? Um, well, I actually have one of the. Uh, uh, there's an appendix in the back of the book that says where I go from here. So I actually have some good advice. But my main my main advice is what do you most enjoy reading? So the, one of the the reasons why I, I took so long to find sentences, I wanted to find really good interesting sentences that demonstrated the principle that they were learning in that chapter, but also that were something that someone would actually want to read. So there's such a wide range of stuff. I would say whatever interests you most, I, I would suggest prose uh, rather rather than poetry. But there's a lot of great websites out there. There's a one called a publishing company called Bolchazzi Carducci. Don't ask me to spell it, but um, it's in the book. You can see it. And um, they're a great website. And there's a lot of books written for people who have just read like a basic textbook. And they have a lot of help. So one, a lot of the stuff that I do, so all the sentences that I have have helpful little notes right next to them, and they make books like that. There's books with same same, uh, same page facing vocab where you don't have to go out and buy another dictionary. You can have it all there. My favorite thing to use for people who want to just start reading the New Testament, it's called uh, A Reader's Greek New Testament. Uh, Zondervan puts it out, I believe. And the nice thing about that is it looks and feels like a real Bible and real scripture, so it's not kind of a cheap paperback. It has the real scripture feel, the, the, the ribbon and all of that, but it's half of the Greek. And then the bottom page is all the vocab word that's not super common, so you don't have to do a lot of flipping of pages. Uh, one of the things that I'm, I am, uh, anything that minimizes having to flip pages, I am very much in, in favor of. So the more you can have on the page itself, uh, the better. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually going to myself go and look for that. I have uh, something, I don't think it's Zondervan, it's, a, it's one of these other ones where it's the Nestle Alland. They have one, which is the New Testament, and in the back of it, it's a much bigger book because the, the back of the book is the dictionary. And then they have another one, which is a slim dictionary. There was a time where there was a publishing demand for all of these things, but they, they're not as convenient. So I'm, I'm actually myself, thank you, I'm going to go find this because I didn't know it existed. And then if you ever decide, I, I uh, decided to uh, teach myself re rather shoddily, but uh, Hebrew last summer when I, after I got tenure, and uh, they make a Hebrew edition as well. And then they have one that actually has both together. So I have a, uh, I have one with the Hebrew and one with the, the New Testament together on the same, same volume. That's really nice. You know, before we go back and end with reflections on your, your book itself, some of the comments that you made right there made me think in larger part about the, the field itself of Greek and Greek studies. And I'm wondering sometimes about, you know, the sort of in the field of classics and in the field of, of teaching Greek, there's always sort of like this perpetual fire alarm going off that um, we must always rush to, to save it. Uh, you know, one of the things I want to throw out to you and, and see what your thought is, is that one, if the crisis is so bad, what good is publishing new textbooks going to do to alleviate it? Or two, the, the alternative, and maybe I'm presenting a false dichotomy, is that maybe things aren't bad at all. Um, we just have this bad model or, or we know that uh, panic sells. And so actually things aren't so bad and maybe 
go get this book. And there are lots of people learning Greek um, and there's a wider world. And, you know, in this internet age, you're being connected to communities of people. So maybe in your small town in, uh, I'm in Kansas, maybe in your small town in Kansas, no one really cares about learning Greek, but there's all sorts of people all throughout the world who are learning Greek right now. So maybe there, there's a much bigger market. Um, uh, and actually I shouldn't say market, a much bigger community of people doing this than we, than we ever give it credit for. You know, I, I think you're right. And I think that for me, I think the kind of the hope of it, you know, like, you know, the hope of education in the middle ages or the dark ages, uh, I, even though I hate that term dark ages rested in the monasteries, I really think if classics is the study of classics is going to survive, that it's really going to come from the, uh, classical schools. Catholic homeschools or even uh, non-Catholic schools and cla- any kind of classical model school, uh, I think that's where where people are going to fall in love with it. Um, I think there's in the kind of the wilder, wider field of classics now, there's this kind of uh, attempt to either denigrate everything that was uh, in the classical tradition, but it's hard to kind of sell hey, kids on, hey, come major in everything that's wrong with the world. People don't get excited about that. And so or make classics anything classics has to speak on on, on contemporary issues on and so there's the attempt to do that and and i'm kind of painting in very broad strokes but my response to that would be that you know to, to say that a subject is deeply fascinating and has great value is not to put it all up on a pedestal and and they the the, the greeks themselves i think would be aghast if people were to do this um uh, you you have these authors writing about kind of very dark things, uh, very horrific things. You take Thucydides, um, Euripides. We're not just taking a certain set of authors and saying this is you know we have to treat all of these secular classical texts uh, as as religious texts and any criticism of anything they say or the themes they treat is somehow sacrilege. I, I don't think that's a healthy way to to, to revive. Uh, the classics as well. But I also think, you know, I find, so I teach at a school that most of our students are first generation. So the wars and, and, and in a sense, the big issues that are going on in many Catholic university classics department now, my students do not care and they don't know, right? They're too busy being the first kid in their, their, their um, family to ever go to college to really get in the weeds about certain kind of uh, debates among people uh, at classical societies. They just don't care. And so in a sense, sometimes I talk about it, but really most of what we're just doing is like, this is some really fun stuff to learn and and, and let's learn it. So I think that that's the key. You're going to have to have people who love what they study uh, and in order to, to transmit it. Otherwise, it's not going to be worth worth transmitting. So I'm actually rather rather bullish on the, the future of classics, but I think it's going to to have to kind of come from from the ground up rather than top down. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm looking at the time and I'm going to give you just a a chance here at the end to give me an elevator pitch of if I've been teaching Greek or if I've been eyeing up learning Greek, why am I choosing your textbook versus anything else out on the market? Let me actually first just make a general pitch for particularly if you, you know, if you have a a wider uh, Catholic audience of why you would want to learn uh, Greek in the first place. Um, one of the coolest things is to basically have kids who've, who've grown up with scripture all their lives and reading scripture, kind of read it to go through the textbook and read all the kind of passages. Like, man, I thought I, I thought I knew that passage, right? But there's this thing that I had no clue was there. 
Now, let me, I always preface it on my first day of class. I said, look, this is not going to make you a holier person. I'm not Gnostic. This is, uh, uh, knowing Greek is not somehow going to make get you closer into heaven uh, than not knowing Greek. But there is so much in Scripture that kind of the touch, the feel, the texture. Greek is a remarkably subtle language and one in which there are a wide range of meanings. These type of things are reading the beginning of John's prologue to his gospel. There's so much that he's doing with word order that you just can't communicate when you're, you're reading in translation because English is largely bound on word order, which Greek is not. So there's this beautiful interlinking chain. And so there's so many like just really cool things. And one of the things that I always do in class is I always the, the things my students consistently say are the most enjoyable parts of my class is the digressions. I use strategic digressions and all of my classes about this particular word, where does this etymology come from? Why do why does the word for cosmos and the universe have anything to do with cosmetics and all of these kind of links of etymologies? And so all of those things that I normally talk about in class, at the end of each chapter, they have their own section. It's called uh, etymology and discussion topics, where I have like five or six just really cool things about either a vocab word from that chapter or a word, a sentence that's that's in, in the chapter itself. So that would be my pitch for people who, uh, particularly Catholic audience, who might not uh, know why they should read Greek. And we're really, the reading of the scriptures is really one of the things I'm most grateful for about Greek is being able to, to read the scriptures. My book in particular really comes down to the sentences. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, now I know why when I was searching for all these books with real sentences that were good, I couldn't find any because it takes forever to do. So it's really hard. Uh, and so one of the things that's really hard about some of the books that we probably grew up using is that, you know, you're doing all this, and you know, I want to read Greek, and then I'm reading these sentences that I just don't care about. And so I don't expect every sentence in the book to kind of light a fire and wow someone. But I do hope that uh, each chapter would at least have a couple sentences that kind of light the fire of imagination and, and, and make the person say, okay, I want to I want to learn more about this. I want to read more sentences and learn more things because uh, this stuff is, is, is really fascinating. Thanks for listening today. If you're intrigued by Dr. Bowler's book, Introduction to Classical and New Testament Greek, A Unified Approach, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online outlets. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. You can always reach me on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash wellreadcatholic, where you can also throw a dollar in the tip jar to help us improve the equipment that we use to produce the podcast. And we'll even send you some nifty stuff in return. I've been your host, Patrick Callahan, and until next time, don't forget to pick it up and read.